Welcome to The Minor Consult, where I speak with leaders shaping our world in diverse ways. Today, I'm joined by Busy Burr, interim CEO of the Rite Aid drugstore chain. Busy is an accomplished leader in Silicon Valley and the healthcare industry with a proven track record of accelerating innovation. Before taking the helm at Rite Aid, she served as the president and chief commercial officer of Carrot Inc., a digital health company supporting smoking cessation. She has extensive experience in product development, investment banking, and global marketing. And on top of her executive experience, she's also a veteran member of the Bay Area Improv Troupe, Subject to Change. I'm delighted to welcome her to the Minor Consult to discuss her journey as a technology investment banker, her vision for Rite Aid and the future of drugstores, and her insights on effective leadership from the Fortune 500 boardroom to the improv stage. Busy, welcome. It's great to have you here today. It's wonderful to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Busy, you majored in economics at Smith College, and you got your MBA here at Stanford at the Graduate School of Business. What was it about the business world that drove you to choose a career as an executive, and what was your career goal starting out? So I I don't think I had a goal exactly. And um, I think at the time going into business felt a little bit revolutionary. Um, my dad owned a, owned a uh, custom steel fabrication uh, business in Boston, and he was a very talented engineer and a successful businessman. Um, so that was probably the model. But growing up, um, I didn't know any women who worked in business. Um, the men were lawyers and doctors and business owners. The women were stay-at-home moms or in some cases teachers or in some cases nurses. Um, so going into a business career felt like uh, part of the women's liberation movement. Oops, there go the dog. Sorry about that. Um, That's okay. Uh, uh, it's it, Like I said, it was like it felt a little revolutionary. I think in, in a weird way, the women of the 70s and 80s like we were, it felt a bit like we had a bit of an obligation to tackle the men's um, professions. So that was likely part of it. Of course. Well, you have to tell us about your dog. Uh, what kind of dog <laughs> do you have? I have two, two golden retrievers that are going nuts right now because one of okay. them is going off. I think the dog walker is here and going to take them out for a walk today. So, oh, good. so that's what, but it should be quiet any minute now. But yes, I, I live with in, a, in a, a crazy household with loud dogs. But I think we've gotten used to that over the pandemic. Like, this is like the exactly. World. <laughs> exactly. Well, you have an illustrious career. And before we get to Rite Aid, I'd love to discuss some of the lessons you've learned along the way. Your resume includes decades of experience in top tier companies such as Gap, Morgan Stanley, Credit Suisse, eBay, City, just to name a few. And you also established and ran your own company in 2005, LucyandLily.com. So after being in the corporate world, what made you decide to become an entrepreneur? Hmm. And how did your life differ from your earlier career and inform your next steps? I guess when you're sort of in Silicon Valley since the 80s, I've been really uh, loved watching how technology was just enabling and radically changing a lot of old and tired ways of working. I mean, I remember in the eighties, we saw things like voicemail, which was like, like <laughs> amazing, right? To now we don't even think about it, but at the time it was amazing. And then, you know, email emerged in the nineties and chips were getting faster and the internet and mobile was creating connectivity. And um, both of those connectivity, that, that connectivity changed the paradigm, like of just the way work was gonna happen. Um, 
So I just wanted to apply technology to the challenges of apparel manufacturing, which I had seen when I'd worked at Gap. It was a super wasteful, very environmentally unsound. And um, and I just thought that, you know, we could we could deploy technology to solve some of those problems. And we did for about five years. And then uh, we got we made it almost impossible to raise money in the 2008 crash. Um, and so that was that. It was a very exhilarating experience. I like loved it. It was ultimately very painful and sad. So I know that emotional roller coaster that uh, that is entrepreneurship. As you mentioned, you've you've really focused on digital platforms and how they can transform industries and businesses and, and indeed ways of life. And you've also been focused on digital platforms related to health. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that a little bit more? And how did you develop a passion for the consumer experience? And how did that then relate to your focus on health? I think what happens sometimes is product people fall in love with a product and what it does instead of the customer need that it actually solves for. So I think that's what I've really been fascinated um, by with digital. Um, you know, if you're not solving it from the right, from the very beginning, the true customer need, you're going to end up needing to hire marketing and salespeople to commercialize a product because it won't commercialize itself. And um, it doesn't have commercial appeal from the start because it wasn't built that way. And so that happens all the time. A lot of well-intentioned products that actually maybe sort of seem like they're going to solve a problem, but they don't solve that human-centered barrier um, that enables them to truly be adopted. I have this, this story that I tell a lot. When I was, when I was working at City, um, we had the digital team that was um, working on you know, digital solutions, but obviously from, from the bank's point of view. And I can remember the head of digital, we were grabbing coffee in Palo Alto and he was saying, oh, busy, we just did this new release. It's awesome. And he goes, people love transferring money. And I'm like, do you hear yourself? And he's like, what do you mean? They're doing it all the time. They go online, they go on the mobile and they're transferring money like crazy. I'm like, that doesn't mean that people love transferring money. They transfer money because we make them transfer money. Because if they don't, we're going to penalize them for being overdrawn. <laughs> like they don't yeah. love it. We've just made it a little bit easier for them to do this nuisance. And so, I think there's mm. just this, this, uh, the like really the right set of eyes with a customer experience um, that sometimes gets missed um, with uh, with product people. I, does that answer your question? I don't know. I sort of yes, no, it's story. really helpful. It's really helpful. Uh, focus on focus on the consumer. And um, and they don't and, always not. Consumers and, don't always, if you ask a consumer what they want. Right. Um, I, I used to tell this story, um, and it's, it's hard to do it on, on a podcast, but when I, was, when I was talking to folks, I would walk out into the audience and I would say, I need a pen. And people would hold up pens and like hand, hand pens to me. And then I would hold the pen in front of them and say, why do I need a pen? I'm sitting here talking to you. Why do I need a pen? And they would come up with all these reasons for why. Oh, you're going to write something down. I'm like, no, I'm in the middle of doing a talk. Why am I writing something down? You want to point at something. I said, I've got fingers. I don't need to point at anything. Why do I need a pen? And people were sitting there trying to fill in reasons why I need a pen. And then I would turn around and take the pen and scratch my back. And everybody would be like, oh, you wanted to scratch your back. I said, for one of you guys, if you had asked me why I needed a pen and then saw that what I wanted to do was scratch my back and you provided me with a back scratcher instead of a pen, I would have loved you because you would have solved my problem. <laughs> I thought I knew the solution to my problem, 
But if I had told you, if you'd actually found out for me that what I didn't need was a pen, what I needed was my back scratched, then we would have a different solution. So it's really getting at the core. When customers say what they need, they are, they're almost always trying to solve their own problem. That's great. As vice president and head of healthcare and innovation trends at Humana, you, you met with hundreds of healthcare startups to identify promising ventures for investment. So what characteristics did you look for that signaled a potentially successful startup? And how do you think the current economic climate is going to impact the healthcare startup space? Oh, wow. Okay. So I saw lots of stuff. Um, I think the first thing almost any venture person looks for is leadership. So you want to make sure that the person is going to be able to inspire, attract, retain talent. And then probably secondly, similar to that is the ability to attract capital. You want to have somebody who understands how venture capital works and how the decisions are made and their sort of ability to influence and attract capital over time. Um, so those are kind of the two, like that's the ABCs. Then um, I think this is kind of sadly and happily, I, I don't know how to, how, to, how to think about this, but the reality is that the payers in the space, which are really insurance companies and um, and, and employee benefit providers. That's where the, most of the funding for healthcare is coming from. Um, uh, I think those, those places are deciding what's important and, and what's going to make it. They, they, are the, they are the ones who are blessing what's going to win. And they're mm-hmm. only focused on the things that are the high cost issues to them, which are things like diabetes, CHF, COPD, musculoskeletal, like me, replacement stuff, maternity care, um, hospital utilization. And they're only looking at the things that are actually line items. So however it's organized to them is the way that they're seeing it. And so they're looking at the costs of, of, um, of diabetes care because it's organized and, and, and put out that way. They're not looking at food. They're not looking at... Um, you know, for older folks, they're not looking at the cost of cognitive decline. They're not looking at the cost of um, loss of hearing and what that does to people's cognitive decline. It's not a line item. So they're not seeing it. So the things that become successful in healthcare, are the things that answer the way that we measure stuff and the stuff that has the big numbers off of it. The second I'm going to get on, I'm getting on my soapbox now. I apologize. But the, the next one is um, the healthcare system is built around uh, one year ROI because we have the annual benefit enrollment period and mm-hmm. every year everybody can, you know, they can change their health care or change what their insurance is or whatever and this happens in the you know, same thing in, in Medicare there's the annual bid process and so everybody's trying to solve for everything in a one year ROI and health isn't health isn't a one year ROI you know as well as I do this is a journey this is a this is a wellness journey and um, sort of and meshed in the system is this one-year marker that, that creates a disincentive to invest in preventative care and to invest in long-term care and to invest in long-term health. At Rite Aid, you joined the board and transitioning now. Well, I think there's a lot more to be said. Yeah. And I, um, I also, maybe on that on the topic of healthcare venture and yeah. investment, yeah. what one of the things, one of the many things that Carrot accomplished 
yeah. uh, with your leadership is uh, you, you really did design and implement a program that changed behavior. Yeah. I, when I moved here several years ago and I was getting to know people in the venture community, I asked one successful healthcare venture capitalist, you know, what, what, what pitch, if you heard it for, you know, for three minutes, if you just said immediately to the entrepreneur, thank you, uh, this is not going to work for us. Uh, have a good day. And he said, anyone that tries to pitch me a digital health idea to change behavior, I'm not <laughs> interested. Um, and and Carrot proved that that you can change behavior. What what were the keys to 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 Carrot being successful? I think there's I think there's a couple of things. Um, I think one is um, Dr. Utley, Stanford physician, who, who founded it and started as passionate understood his patients very, very well and understood the challenges of the solutions that were already out there for people who smoked. And I guess another classic place where nobody had touched it for years because of the cynicism and the belief that people just don't want to change. Um, and he believed. And so he started that company with that level of passion. Um, great product development folks who were very human-centered. Um, and so I think that was, um, I think that was, that was part of it. Lots of uh, lots of real life testing and watching people use the product, understanding the holistic nature, understanding the emotional journey that people have to go through um, with with uh, giving up, you know, getting rid of tobacco in their lives. It's it's not just the nicotine habit; it's the behavioral habits that surround it. People get up in the morning, they have a cigarette in the car. Like it, they associate. It becomes not about the nicotine, but about that in this moment, I'm having my coffee, I have a cigarette. So recognizing that, not just the sort of medical, but the behavioral, habitual, social nature of it, um, I think was another really key, um, key factor in it. Um, and technically, and also just the first feedback mechanism, the, the breath, you know, the, they had this, this tool that enabled you to uh, analyze breath. Um, so people got this real-time feedback, which when you're trying to break a habit, um, even a scale doesn't really tell you anything, but this tells you immediately your behavior and its impact on what's happening with your breath, what's happening with the, 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 uh, the chemicals in your, in your breath and what's coming out. And people could, you know, postpone a cigarette for 30 minutes to an hour or two hours and immediately see that, um, that change. And so it created this this really positive feedback loop. Great, great. Well, maybe now we, we will transition to Rite Aid. And, and you joined the board in 2019, just in time for the COVID-19 pandemic. <laughs> and what were your key considerations for navigating the pandemic as you saw fewer in-person shoppers, but you also were a key distributor of vaccines? Mm -hmm. I think for Rite Aid, we had to become very nimble, and that's true for all the pharmacies. They become very nimble um, and had to evolve their digital solutions really, really quickly to accommodate millions of people wanting to schedule appointments for at a pharmacy, for example. Something that hadn't been a factor before. You didn't schedule an appointment at a pharmacy. Um, so those tools uh, have become really vital and important as uh, vaccines have, have continued to shift to uh, to pharmacies and pharmacists. Um, I think it just got people to start to rec start to recognize a pharmacist as an accessible touch point for healthcare as another piece of the of the system. Um, I think up until this point they were just kind of seen as pill counters, but I think for a lot of consumers they see them as really good trusted sources of um, information. 
Um, and I, I, I think it's, I think this is a, I think this is a, a really good, a really good change for the healthcare system to start to, you know, pharmacists see people regularly when they're going in to pick up, um, you know, medications that are, you know, regular medications. If they've got, if someone's on a maintenance medication, they're seeing their pharmacist regularly. That's a great place for pharmacists to kind of check in, check in on vaccines, check in on other kinds of important components of their care. So I think um, people are recognizing that. I think that was a really good outcome of the, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic that pharmacies really stepped up and started to take a new place in the healthcare system. That's uh, I think that's such an important observation, and I I think we're seeing it every day. And uh, but the times have continued to be turbulent for for yeah. your industry. Uh, and how have you maintained confidence of of your senior leadership team of of the people who are running the stores every day, the pharmacists, and what has the pandemic taught you about leadership and affected your leadership style? Yeah, I think, um, I think all the pharmacies, uh, I think this is just not pharmacies. I think this is true of hospitals. I think this is true of everybody that was in the healthcare system. I think we all had to become much more agile and adaptable, um, to really question our ways of doing business. That was true at Rite Aid. Um, a lot more discipline, a lot more rigor and a lot more agility. Um, I think at, at Rite Aid, we call this, we're driving a culture um, where we hustle with humility. So um, this recognition of the importance, important role that you're playing, but also that you, you've got to hustle and change. I think how quickly everyone had to adapt um, was such a shock to the system that it really created um, this, this constant questioning of routine, this constant questioning of... of um, of the, the way of doing things because one, one, what seemed like a tiny shakeup <laughs> and when it was a few people in China in January suddenly turned into yeah. something so rapid and, and we knew so little and we, we all had to adapt with very little amounts of information. Um, I think that's a muscle that we can't lose. I think we're going to need that. And, and yeah. I don't want to be a Debbie Downer on this, but this may not be the, the last of these we see, right? This, this, this may for be sure. a new reality for, sure. for us. <laughs> and so I think all of us, this, I think, not just in the healthcare system, I think everywhere created this, this requirement to have an, a muscle that's agility, that agility has, has discipline and rigor to it. It's interesting. Agility isn't just about like switcheroo. Agility has a, has a, 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 like a gymnastics to it. There's a muscularity to it. And I, and I feel like that's what we've all needed to adapt. And I hope that we can continue to use that. Um, and that it will help our system. It will help our healthcare system to become more adaptable, to innovate faster and so on. What's your vision for the drugstore of the future? And how do you think digital health and its many manifestations is going to impact Rite Aid and the other large, um, you know, pharmaceutical and consumer-focused mm -hmm. goods uh, stores in the country. Yeah, yeah. Well, unlike your friend who doesn't believe in digital health and behavior change, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm sort of bullish on it. So, and I think I always have. <laughs> I am been. too. Um, and I and I am because fundamentally, it's the thing that that solves both a need for the consumer and for the system. It's bringing mobile technology 
it's bringing insight, it's bringing real-time data into the hands of both the system, the physicians, as well as individuals who become can become much more engaged and knowledgeable about their health. So as a concept, I really believe in it. And I know that it's the future. And it's had its bumps along the way. Um, but you ask about the drugstore of the future. I think... Um, I do think the role of the pharmacist is forever changed, and I think it's going to continue to change. I think, um, you know, we're working, I know other pharmacies are working on on figuring out ways to streamline uh, the routine tasks that physicians, that uh, pharmacists do, um, so they can operate at the top of their license, um, kind of right. in the front of the pharmacy, more with customers that includes using technology to, um, like, develop centralized fill operations, you know, more automation to free up time. And, uh, and technician time. We're exploring more remote work for those physicians that don't want to be customer facing, that have the ability to do pharmacy verifi verification remotely, uh, again, as a way um, to create more technology and, and more flexibility in uh, pharmacist roles. Um, but I do think, you know, digital, uh, digital in the pharmacy is everything about connecting people to understand their medications, to create more medication adherence, to create more information um, about drug interactions um, so that so the drugs can be administered more effectively, safely, more customized. All of that is accessible to us through digital technology. So shifting gears now to improv, you're, you're a member <laughs> of the, a long-term member of uh, yes. the improv performing troupe, uh, Subject to Change. Yeah. And first, I'd love to know how you got involved in improv and what it has contributed to your life and to your effectiveness as an executive. So this could be a whole podcast in and of itself. So <laughs> it's just, great. Just it's like this is so I honestly what I, a friend of mine from business school had taken an improv class and I was ran into her. I don't know, ran into her someplace and she was telling me about it. And she's like, you should do that. It might be fun. Go try this. And I was like, all right, I'll try it. So I did. And I just got hooked. And this was probably almost 20 years ago. And um so I just started taking more classes and more lessons in it. And I loved the art form. And so um, it's, it's a, it's a, it, people get confused about improv versus sketch comedy and improv is literally, there's no script. It's, um, yeah. it's about creating as you're acting and um, you have to really let go and be really comfortable with uncertainty of just not knowing and of just discovering. And it's an incredibly, vulnerable art form because you're in front of an audience and you don't have lines you have to make them up as you go <laughs> um, and so it's a it's a it's a it's a really wonderful um um uh it's a very invigorating and wonderful experience to 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 be in the in the art of creation and to have the audience watch you as you're doing yep. this creation so it's really i would say you know you asked about how it impacts me in business and i kind of have i've given this talk before so i have like the three things in my mind um okay. and one of these is it's all about like i call it listening exquisitely which is you have to really be in the moment everybody knows about improv knows the yes and uh expression mm -hmm. that's really the and is really about the yes is I have heard you and I acknowledge you. And the and is I'm going to contribute to what you've said. So because you're creating something, you have to be really present and you have to really pay attention um, to the clues 
and to everything, not just what the person's saying, but their body language, their facial expression. Um, and each one of those is sort of an offer into the story and being part of that. So listening exquisitely means like ex listening with your whole body and listening with your heart and your mind and your soul and to what's being said and what's happening and then shutting down your judgment and not planning what you're going to, what your response is going to be, but rather really listen. Um, and that's about giving people the space to convey their ideas. Does that make sense? Sort of it's, there's a, there's a listening Absolutely. piece. Then there's this, um, this whole thing about facing your fears, like right in mm. the face. Like every time I, I do improv, you just, you're, you're, you face humiliating failure because you just, you just, the odds of screwing up are pretty high. <laughs> and so we do like, we do improv musicals. Like, like this is the entire thing is improvised. Like the music, the lyrics, the story. So if you just think improv is hard, imagine trying to improvise like a Disney ballad or a duet, like on stage in front of an audience. Like you just, you just, it's just nonsense it's really crazy that we do it actually um so uh so the fear is actually in it's in the air but it's actually in the empty space it's in that moment where you feel like you feel like you're going to be like i got nothing it's my turn and i got right. nothing and so you really learn in improv to trust that in that moment in any moment you're going to have what you need it's either going to be in your head or it's going to be in your heart or it's going to be in your partners, but you will have what you need in the moment. And so I think that's like a really interesting business lesson too, is that there's a, an improv, you have to let go of control, but you have to, you only let go of control if you're so present in the moment, you're paying attention and you know that the answer is there and you're going to find it and it's going to be there and you sort of trust the process to get to it. Um, so you're going to really trust yourself, but trust your partners on stage. And then the third one I always talk about is selflessness, which is kind of tied to the other two, which is, mm -hmm. it's about really being super generous in improv is that you make choices that are all about making your partners look good on stage and you trust that they're going to do the same for you. So the magic in, in, in improv exists between the art actors. I think people think of improv as being like somebody has a funny one-liner, but that actually isn't what makes people enjoy and love improv. They love watching the kind of mistakes or the, the, the reality of life that emerges in the creation that they're watching, the spontaneity of it. Um, and so for it to really work, you have to just let go and trust the process and trust your partners. And I always say to people, imagine a workplace that worked like that, where yeah, yeah. you knew everyone you worked with every day was focused on making you look good. And your mission was to do the same for them. Imagine a workplace yeah. like that, how wonderful that would be. And so that's why improv is so great because it's that little microcosm. <laughs> that's fantastic. Have you found that among your leadership team and the various organizations you've led, including Rite Aid now, have, have those principles also been embraced by those working directly with you and those whom you choose to to be, you know, senior leaders in your organizations? Um, I think so. I think, um, well, look, I could just be the first one to say we all fail at listening. 
Like that's, that's the, that's the magical thing that we all need to do a better job of. Um, and I think I maybe am more conscious of it when I fail at it because of improv. I think, um, there is this thing that you notice when people are in meetings, somebody will say something and then, um, they'll be talking for a while. And then the next person who talks says, I want to get back to the first thing you said. And I do this too. And what it means is that whatever anybody said after the first thing they said, nobody heard it. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, yeah. I just, I, I ignored everything. And I've been sitting here planning my response to the first thing you said. Right. right. And, and, and so, and some people are introverts and some people are extroverts. So some people are introverts. Whatever comes out is fully formed and, and perfect. And some people are extroverts and they kind of have to process from that first thing they said to the last thing they said. And it's hard to be patient when someone's trying to get a thought out when you really, really just want to respond to the first thing they said. Sure. So sure. Um, I do think that's what exquisite listening is about. It's about kind of sitting and being patient and letting someone get their full thought out and not trying not to plan your response until they're through. Um, and I think also as a leader, um, you have to kind of call BS on the politics when you see it. Mm-hmm. If you see people trying to play you or play people off each other or be manipulative, there's not a, there's not a truth and honesty happening in that moment. And you need to create a space right. where people feel like they can be vulnerable and they can be true and honest. And that's very hard the more senior you get in an organization because often people have succeeded to get to that point by being a little bit ruthless. Um, yep. So I do think yep. I try to create an environment of kind of ruthless vulnerability and honesty um, and um, and I think that is refreshing for some people. Absolutely. Busy, when you were named Rite Aid's interim CEO earlier this year, you became one of just 53 women and just a handful of openly gay CEOs Mm -hmm. leading Fortune 500 companies. What's been your experience over the years as a woman and LGBTQ plus executive? And what advice would you give to those who aspire to lead large companies? Well, the first thing I always say to everybody is hold on to your sense of humor because you're going to need it <laughs> badly. <laughs> um, I would say, uh, well, I started on Wall Street in the 80s and things were really different than for women than they are now. And so, um, and I think I, you know, when at the beginning when I was talking about how it felt sort of revolutionary at the time to kind of go after Wall Street, you know, go after the men's professions. Um, and there weren't that many women on Wall Street back then in the early 80s. Um, and so that was that was not easy. It was challenging. Um, uh, and so I think back then that was really just relying on other women who were going through the same thing and being able to talk amongst ourselves a lot. So kind of having having posses of, of support back then. Um, 
But I think, what advice would I give to people? I think, um, I think sometimes I, I would say leading is hard. And um, I think sometimes people think that leaders need to have all the answers. Like you feel like when you're a leader, sometimes you're, you're, you're wise. And, um, and I think if you think that you've gotten into trouble, um, if you think you have all the answers and there are plenty of CEOs out there, plenty of narcissists out there who think they do. And um, I, I, it's toxic and doesn't create good environments. I think the solutions are always deep inside of an organization and your job really as the leader is to kind of free up the gunk to get to free up the what i call the clay layer the place where stuff gets stuck um people always say that they need to be empowered and um they you know i need to be empowered to do things and i have this thing where i say you are hereby empowered like i just kind of bless them and say you're empowered because everyone is empowered already and um i think it's alice walker who said um, and I'm going to misquote. If I misquote, I'm going to have to fix it later. <laughs> but it's like, uh, it's like, um, it's like the, like the, the greatest way that people give up their power is by thinking they don't have any. Okay. And that's what you have to, leaders have to do is they have to have their teams yep. and people realize that they have the knowledge, they have the ability and they have the power to solve problems. Um, that there isn't some grand wisdom that's going to come and it's going to be bestowed upon them from the senior leadership team or from the CEO, but rather it's inverted that uh, it's up to us as leaders to sort of really ensure that the people understand that they're the wisdom in the organization. Um, And I think, I think that came to me later in life and not early in life. I wish I'd known that earlier that I didn't, that becoming a leader or being given or being promoted into a certain position doesn't somehow require or imply that you know everything. It means you know how to lead. Right. Exactly. So, Busy, two quick questions in closing. First, what do you think are the most important qualities for a leader today? Hmm. Um, sense of humor. I said that already once. I, that's yeah, just, I that's like that. sanity. <laughs> that's just sanity. Um, I think... I think you have to lead with your heart and your head. I think you have to have empathy. And that's not just for um, understanding consumer needs. That's understanding the needs of the, the people that you work with. Um, so I think um, empathy, I think humility. Like I said before, I think there's too many narcissists out there um, who are in positions of leadership. Um, and... I think authenticity and the willingness to be ability to be vulnerable are probably those are great, great, great characteristics. And finally, what gives you hope for the future? Mm. Um, what gives me hope for the future? Like people, I, I think, I particularly. I think this is, I'll, I'll speak specifically to healthcare for a second, but mm-hmm. I, 
I started in financial services. I was in technology. I worked in retail. I worked in all these other businesses. And then I moved over into healthcare, um, not having been in it and taking a, a, a role in, in, a, in a company like Humana where I really didn't, I didn't, I didn't know anything. I just, I didn't know anything. I realized how dumb I was really fast, <laughs> but I, I was a quick study. So, um, but I think what I saw really quickly is pretty much everybody who's in healthcare earnestly wants to make a better system and earnestly mm -hmm. wants to help make people well, like almost universally, universally. And unlike a lot of other businesses where it's really, they're coin operated, healthcare isn't as coin operated. It's coin, everything's coin operated because we're in a market and we're in a capitalist system. But fundamentally, a lot of people in healthcare, people that I met earnestly, deeply with their heart wanted to make things better for people. They wanted people to be healthier. They wanted people's lives to be easier. They wanted people to have better quality of life. And so I think that's what gives me tremendous hope for the future in Absolutely. healthcare is the people that are in it earnestly care about the people they care for. And, um, yeah. and, and, I, and let me just say, it's not just the patients. I think people right. earnestly care about the lives of doctors right now. Listen, it's, yes. it's, it's horrible and it's challenging and it's difficult yep. and, and nurses. And, and so I think the pandemic woke up a lot of people to the challenges in the healthcare system for the challenges that the people who are in the system who are giving care to the people who are getting care. Um, and I think that's like step one, right? Is making sure that you've got people who are in it trying to fix it, who truly genuinely care about the right things. So that's what probably that's gives wonderful. me the most hope about the future is the people solving for the future, frankly. Well, Busy, that's wonderful. Thank <laughs> you so much. Thank you for listening to The Minor Consult with me, Stanford School of Medicine, Dean Lloyd Minor. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion with Busy Burr, Interim CEO at Rite Aid. Please send your questions by email to theminorconsult at theminorconsult.com and check out our website, theminorconsult.com, for updates, episodes, and more. To get the latest episodes of The Minor Consult, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please rate the podcast five stars. Your feedback helps make this podcast happen. Thank you so much for joining me today. I look forward to our next episode. Until then, stay safe, stay well, and be kind.